Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to uh, uh, another edition of uh, Conversation in New Jersey Education. It's a new series that we're starting, uh, looking at uh, legal school uh, law issues during the pandemic. Uh, today, we'll be talking about uh, the evaluation process in special education. Um, there's so many issues that have changed pretty much uh, since we uh, closed our schools in uh, March. Um, if you have a question, you can just call 1-347-989-8904 and just press the number 1, and Robin, who's monitoring our switchboard, will get your name, and then I will call you and get your topic. You can ask the question. Or you can just type a comment or question in the chat room, and I'll pass it on to our uh, guest. Um, uh, with me is Christine Soto from the law firm of Florio, Perucci, Seinhardt, Capelli, Tipton, and Taylor. Um, so welcome, Christine. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Ray, and thank you to New Jersey School Boards for the opportunity to be here this afternoon. Um, so just tell us, before we get into the, all the issues, uh, just uh, where your firm's lo- located and uh, a little bit about the education law uh, attorney. Absolutely. Sure. Happy to do that. So uh, my name, as you said, is Christine Soto, and I am a co-chair of the Floria Perucci, Steinhardt, Capelli, Tipton, and Taylor Education Law Practice. I chair the practice area with my partner, Lester Taylor, and we also have another attorney and partner, Afshan Ajmiri Hinera, who's part of our leadership team here. We are a mid-sized New Jersey firm. We have various different practice areas at Floria Perucci, a large public and well-known public entity practice. Uh, we, In terms of our education law practice, if I may uh, say so myself, I believe we have one of New Jersey's premier practice groups, um, not just because of our talented, diverse group of attorneys, but also our subject matter expertise and the scope of services that we can offer our clients. And we do represent a variety of school districts throughout the state of New Jersey, uh, large urban, suburban, um, just uh, some Votex as well, and uh, we have some additionally uh, college as well as uh, community college clients. So we really run the gamut here at Floria Perucci. Uh, before we went live, you and I were discussing how, you know, this pandemic, we closed our schools in, in uh, March. We thought it would be a couple of weeks, um, and then maybe a month and a spring break, and then all of a sudden we knew it's not going to reopen the schools. Um, during that time period, one of the, the students, uh, class of students that people were most worried about was the special education, uh, you know, because they t- take a lot, the hands-on education is more important. Um, so if we're looking at bringing students back, one of the things that you have to do is start the evaluation process to find out where your students are at. Where, though, before we get into that, what is the current status of special ed law? Has there been any changes and modifications since the p- pandemic? Right. So, I mean, you're you're exactly right, Ray. It's it's just a really complicated time in education. So, when I think about the current status of special ed, you know, various different things come to mind. Um, we're in flux. It's it's complicated. There's 
um, it's transformational. We're evolving, right? We're in this completely new space. Um, and just to share out with the listeners today, my background is really special ed. I was a parent side special ed attorney for more than a decade. I spent some time at the DOE on their executive team, and now I'm back in private practice on the board side. So we, and a lot of the clients that I personally represent is in the space of special ed. So I evaluate and look at special ed from various different lenses. I'm also a parent of a student with, um, well, now no longer a student, but uh, uh, an individual with special needs. So I think Uh, In terms of the status of special education, the laws and at the USDOE, there was really no relaxation except in the area of preschool disabled um, in terms of timelines. And that's a particular challenge because there's very strict timelines in special ed and we're still supposed to be meeting those timelines uh, during this pandemic and public health crisis. And this is as you noted, one of the most vulnerable groups of students, uh, that the cost to this particular group of students can can be very high. It's not automatic. I think it has to be evaluated on an individual basis. But um, this is a very vulnerable group of students who, um, you know, are are definitely at risk in in this current state of special ed. So is there any guidance that has come from the DOE that would help districts do this or in New Jersey that uh, or are we kind of just kind of making it nope. going along as best we can so uh, nope. you know as a former uh, no no absolutely there's guidance and as a former uh, member of the NJDOE team you know I, I'm going to commend the DOE for their effort in trying to confront this this is new to all of us. I I don't know that any of us have lived through a pandemic, and it's very complicated. And, um, you know, guidance has come, I think, for practitioners and those of us who are boots on the ground, maybe not as fast as we would like it. And to the breadth and to the extent that we would like it. There's been multiple broadcasts from the NJDOE regarding special ed. There's been, um, I know that the leadership team, uh, the prior commissioner, along with uh, Peggy McDonald over at the DOE, they've come out on different um, platforms, New Jersey Spotlight, to speak. But in terms of um, guidance with evaluations with what we're talking about today. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was no real guidance with respect to evals. Obviously, the timelines were in place. However, what to do about face-to-face evals, what to do about um, doing these evaluations perhaps remotely. And sort of at the beginning of the pandemic, the concept was, and I think the direction was to put a hold on these face-to-face interactions for all the obvious reasons, safety of students, schools were closed to students, and to go to the extent possible to move forward with evaluations that didn't require a face-to-face interaction. So that could be like a social history or maybe a Vineland or do questionnaires or a Basque or things like that. Um, The complication is that usually an evaluation of a student is um, more comprehensive and, and legally you're supposed to evaluate all areas of suspected disability, which requires minimally two assessments. And, and if some of those assessments and those protocols call for face-to-face evaluation, 
um, it's very difficult. It was very difficult to do. So from a legal perspective, what we were recommending to our clients was to definitely move forward with trying to identify students, refer students for special ed, begin the process, meet with parents and guardians remotely. But when you get to the point where it requires a face-to-face contact, um, we were recommending that districts just provide notice to parents that this is what you're entitled to, this is what we're going to do when school reopens. Um, That's sort of the approach we took. Today, there's been a little bit more guidance in terms of the DOE uh, in their guidance for summer learning programs on June 12th. Uh, they allowed, and I'm going to just read what that guidance said, in some cases districts may be able to conduct in-person evaluations to determine eligibility for special education, re-eval small group interventions, and or related services in person in accordance with the NJDOH standards while delivering other ESY services remotely. Um, So that's really the direct guidance that we've gotten so far from the DOE, but that also um, leaves some questions unanswered because the NJ, you know, the Department of Health standards had certain standards for schools um, and camps and youth programs, and or did we mean the regular Department of Health standards? And, you know, um, some school districts, I believe, have done some in-person um, evaluations over the summer, but I don't think many. So what's the challenge to the, this, the evaluation process then? I mean, who should be doing it? I mean, I, I, it's always the same people, but uh, not to, that hasn't changed. But, um, you know, uh, can they, you know, what's the advantages or disadvantage of doing it remotely? Uh, I guess you can try a hybrid now where maybe someone comes in right. once or, or something of that effect or completely do the in-person. What are some of the pluses and minuses as we go through that? Sure, sure. You know, so I think, first of all, the people, we need to still evaluate students um, who are suspected of having a disability or already have been identified as having a disability need to have um, be reevaluated every three years by code unless um, sometime sooner um, sometimes that can be waived, but generally students are reevaluated who've already been identified every three years. So you have that group of students who need to be looked at. We have new students who are getting referred for the first time, and we see uh, things happening with the student impacting their educational performance. So we have that student. And then different stages of special ed, you have students aging out of preschool and coming up to kindergarten. You have seniors graduating high school who need to be evaluated as they move on to college for perhaps those accommodations. So many, many different groups of individuals who need to be looked at. And so the challenges, um, I think with the challenges right now today, number one, there's a backlog, right? There's a lot of people mm-hmm. in those students in those buckets and those categories that have been on pause, frankly. And as for those districts that chose to do some in-person over the summer, one of the challenges are how do we do that safely? And I think that's the first and foremost. We need to keep not only students safe, but also staff members safe. And that creates a whole um, host of challenges, just the logistics. And for, uh, you know, social distancing and the cleanliness and with buildings not being fully operational or open to students, you know, I wonder as an attorney, are there some liabilities there or other considerations outside of special ed that are going to be impacting? 
um, in terms of, so that's your challenge in person, those logistics and, and different considerations. When mm-hmm. we move to purely virtual, which is what we've been doing for the last few months, um, I think the biggest, uh, you know, safety has been removed, right? Theoretically, now everyone's um, at home and working remotely. There's the digital divide, whether we can get to those students that need to be evaluated and they have the equipment and the Internet. Um, so access to the student is a challenge. Uh, there's also the testing protocol. Some of these testing protocols require face-to-face. Um, so that's up to each individual evaluator in their own profession to look at that, go back to their licensing boards and make sure that they're um, doing uh, these evaluations not only in the educational setting according to the rules and regulations of education, but also um, that they're in line with what their license is. Um, And I know there was some um, tension there at some point between uh, certain groups of professionals not being able to do uh, teletherapy or telehealth. So that's another challenge. And then also just the logistics of the location. Home is home. School is school. So if we're trying to evaluate a student remotely in a home setting, um, you know, what is the fidelity uh, to that evaluation in in a home setting um, versus a school setting or an office setting or a neutral setting? So all of that, um, in terms of hybrid, I think, it's, it's all of that as well, along with just the scheduling, right? When you're hybrid, people are working different times and different schedules and remotely and in person, and the scheduling of all of this um, is just daunting, quite frankly. Um, you know, as you were talking about all the uh, students, and I just thought of this, that we have to evaluate, uh, you know, they're on their normal cycle to be evaluated or were in their normal cycle in April or May. Um, is there a concern that uh, some parents, uh, and maybe the, uh, the schools, we've never gone through this school closure with remote learning for months. Uh, they might want to evaluate students who are um, not on that normal cycle uh, and say, okay, how did this impact the student? Uh, are they, they can, is there any concern in doing that? You mean students who are non-special ed or just students coming no, back no, from being ed, home? But student ed, you mm-hmm. said every three years, if they're not in a, they're right. not moving up to a, a, a you know, not, go, not going from pre-K to K or moving into one of those transitions, they normally wouldn't have that same type of evaluation. But they right. probably, I, I would imagine school districts want to do a, a almost a, I don't want to say a more thorough but I think they have to evaluate that, their students a little bit more this year to, just to see what happened. Right. I see what you're saying. So absolutely. So generally pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, um, while the code says shall evaluate every three years unless the parent waives that or, um, you know, you could do it sooner, but not within a year under most circumstances. So to your point, absolutely, you know, Everyone's changed, right? Students' um, needs may have increased. Some kids actually are are very happy with, you know, maybe a, a digital kind of a remote learning environment. Some of that social um, difficulty, or if they have a student with social anxieties or things like that, the, you know, you can have either setting could work for that student. But as we come back and we re-enter. Um, 
students should, you know, in an ideal world, you're absolutely right. You wouldn't necessarily, normally you would not have to wait every three years, but theoretically there could be an increase of parents saying, listen, you know, my child has had uh, a setback or I need to assess, we need to look at this one area and see if there's additional interventions that we need or, um, you know, it's, it's, they've been changed. It's not been two or three weeks. This has now been several months of isolation and, and the stress of living in a pandemic and however that is impacting. Um, the difficulty is just, uh, are we going to be back face to face to do that? And if we're not, um, you know, if we're in a hybrid situation or a fully virtual again, how do we actually assess those needs appropriately mm-hmm. Um, and I think the creativity has to come in, and um, what we've been recommending for our clients is to have case managers look at the available information on a particular student. Sometimes parents will do private evals if they have that information. You sh- districts are required by law to consider it, but they should, um, those test scores, even if you agree or disagree with the recommendations of a private evaluation, you have some standardized test scores that you could look at, right? Um, I think also child study teams are going to have to, um, and I'm sure there's uh, uh, different testing protocols. If you use one particular assessment tool, is there something else out there that lends itself to a remote or virtual platform that you can then get the information that you need to assess that suspected area of disability. Um, So I think we have to challenge ourselves to go beyond sort of the traditional uh, assessment tools. And and I'm not, you know, I'm not an educator or a a psychologist or a speech pathologist, but there may be Mm -hmm. other tools that wouldn't be your first go-to, but in a remote platform work better. So I would encourage um, child study teams to explore that. Uh, just the, um, the communication with the parent and the child and the child study team. Um, you know that's a very important uh, meeting, and the communication with the parents are, is really important. Is it even more important now because uh, we're meeting remotely and doing everything remote? Uh, Right now we are, or mostly. Absolutely. So uh, even, you know, parents and child study teams should always have good, you know, the best people will ask an attorney, what, what is the best district? Where do I get the best services for my kid? And even when I was parent side, I always said the school district that communicates with you. For me, that is a fundamental um, key component of a collaborative relationship between a school district and uh, parents and a family of, of an individual or student with special needs. Um, we're not always going to agree. Um, we can agree to disagree, but as long as there's a line of communication to your school district and that back and forth, um, that that is fundamental to that relationship. So in this remote um, learning, uh, distance learning environment, child study teams, uh, case managers have been reaching out to families, have been communicating, they've been keeping records of when they're speaking with families in regular contact. I think the complicated, the added complication for distance learning is what about the families we can't reach that way, right? Families that mm-hmm. are not online, families who don't have access or consistent access to the internet. And that's, you know, so what school districts have been doing and should be doing is if you've made an attempt to reach out and communicate and there was no answer, um, 
you know, at some point you may need to do a wellness check on that student. Where is that student? What's happening with that student? Um, and that's very, very important. And that would be true even outside of special ed, that to maintain that connection and communication with the family and making sure that students are getting uh, the education that they're entitled to, um, whether it's remote. I know some um, districts that I've worked, some families wanted, um, they, you know, there's one computer in their house, there's multiple siblings, or a parent needs it for a computer. For some families, it may have worked better to elect to have paper. Um, other families wanted a combination. Other, you know, so it's really about choice and having parents be able to um, pick what works for them. And as the situation changes, to say, okay, I didn't think I could be online with my third grader that many hours or at that time, but I do want it. So even if you elect one option, you and that's actually part of the um, new guidance that came out last Friday with the option for parents to go full remote learning. There is mm -hmm. an option to transmission back. So it's always about going, communicating back and forth and for the parents and guardians of children to have a say, especially in the world of special ed. They're members of the IEP team and should, um, you know, be and should always be heard and uh part of those discussions. And um, I guess, and it's always been important, and you kind of alluded to it several times, but uh, for the board members out there, uh, if you're having difficulty communicating or you are communicating with your parents, this, all that should be documented. Uh, yeah. So that, I mean, that it's that's always important, but it's probably more important now. Right. Well, especially with special um, ed, we're, we're talking about evaluations, but I think the documentation is also important on both sides with respect to assessing what the student needs when they come back in. Um, you know, the term comp ed and about what the student did not get during this remote, um, you know, at the national level, there's a, the, the concept of recovery services, right? Not comp ed, mm -hmm. you get an out. And, and even now under the law, even if you were entitled to uh, speech four times a week and you only got it two times a week and you there doesn't necessarily mean if you sue that the judge is going to come back and say you get your four time they may say well you did okay with two or we'll give you one extra one so it's not oh it's not hour for hour um, and I think it's important for parents to realize that P's are being implemented under the NJDOA guidance to the greatest extent possible so um, there is going to be some recovery services. What that looks like, we still don't have guidance or how to even assess that okay. at this point. But to your point, documentation is really important on both sides. Yeah. Um, we're speaking with Christine Soto uh, about uh, the evaluation process uh, for our special ed students. Uh, if you have a question, dial 1-347-989-8904 and press 1 and then Robin will get that question out to me. Um, what are some things that maybe the districts, you know, uh, uh, shouldn't do? You know, maybe things that they, um, uh, you know, we all make mistakes, but uh, what are some things that they probably shouldn't be doing, you know, shouldn't do now uh, uh, 
during this time period? So I think one of the big ones, and this was this happened um, at the beginning of the pandemic, and there was some uh, agreeing to disagreeing between lawyers and board attorneys on how to handle this, but the DOE came out in the end of April on waivers of future claims or saying, um, you know, it's very clear in the guidance that you should not districts should not be seeking a waiver or a consent as a condition or a barrier to receiving special ed. So the interesting thing for me is when we speak of consent, I I absolutely agree with that. Under the law, you never can waive a future claim, right? You can say, even in Mm -hmm. a settlement agreement, you would say claims from the date of the agreement back, you know, if if you want to sue us for something in the future, you always can. So that's just a basic legal tenant. In terms of consent in a, in a remote learning environment, what's interesting is consent is a barrier to services, prohibitive, but you do need consent from parents and guardians, right? If I have a second grader that I need you to assist getting on a computer, I need your consent to sign on. You know, I don't need a written consent per se, but I do need your cooperation and collaboration with remote learning. I also think consent, which is different um, under FERPA, uh, needing to get consent uh, perhaps uh, for the disclosure, potential disclosure of personal identifying information if it's not falling in one of those exceptions. So, There's different consent, um, and I just think it's important for parents when they evaluate what they're being asked by their school districts, if it's some kind of waiver or consent, if you don't do this, you don't get your special ed, that is prohibited, but there are going to be things that we need you to tell us um, in order to provide your child an education. So that's one thing. And then you said... um, uh, I also think that the other big thing right now for special ed directors or just those administrators in a special ed to work collaboratively and don't work in a vacuum. Um, you may be asked to say, look, or can we evaluate a student face-to-face? It's the summer. The DOE said you may be able to do it. Can we do it? I want my student, my child to be evaluated. That decision needs to be made in conjunction with your administration and your superintendent. Some districts have taken the position that um, if they've not gone for a hybrid program over the summer and have been fully remote, then any kind of evaluations they were doing would be fully remote to the greatest extent possible, right? What they could do. I think if you just let people in the building and you're not communicating with administration, you run the risk of creating other potential liabilities to the board uh, or there's personnel issues and staffing issues and cleanliness and CDC protocols that you have to follow. So communication within the administration is also, um, and your directors of special services or pupil services is very important as well. yeah, these are difficult times. Um, and Absolutely. As, as, <laughs> no, as you and I were discussing before we started, it, it's just uh, no one has experience with this, uh, to oh. say the least. And so, we're, and, and I think everyone is trying their best. And I, I think the parents understand that. Uh, and um, so, any final thoughts that you have on uh, any other final recommendations uh, as we move forward in this, uh, maybe with the, yeah. the reopening plan? Well, I think for me, you know, the first thing that uh, I'd like to just, we need to remember we are in a pandemic. Um, We are in a public health crisis. I know um, it's just, it is what it is to, to the, 
we need to stay safe and the safety of students and staff is seminal. We just always need to be thinking about that. And I'll just leave you with this. When I worked um, on the parent side as a special ed attorney, I worked with a very um, uh, wise uh, attorney, grandfather of special ed, and, and he would say to me, um, you know, it all gets messy in education, right? And when it gets messy, you always need to remember that there's the child at the center of all of this. So I would just like everyone to remember we are definitely at messy times. There's a lot of questions. And as we get guidance, there's more questions. If we can all just remember that at the center of this are children and we work collaboratively and communicate and and for the benefit of those children, I think we will survive these difficult times. Um, and it, we're in a transformational space and time with education. And I think just trying to stay focused that it really truly is about children, um, I think will really be helpful for us to get to the other side of this thing. Oh, that's great. Uh, and for those uh, listening, um, just to let you also know that Christine uh, – Christine will be uh, at our virtual workshop this year. Uh, with, uh, I guess there's others from your firm who will be joining you. Are going to make Lester work too? Yes, I am. So it will be uh, – the, the the challenge, I we were there last year at workshop. We always – Floria Perucci is always a sponsor. We will be there. Um, the nice thing about the future, you know, the virtual platform is we're going to be able to incorporate some more folks from our team, but you will definitely have us doing, um, I'll give you a little sneak preview of what we're going to be doing. Um, we are going to do some fireside chats with some superintendents. So um, we are going to be reaching out to some folks to do that and get their perspective and talk to them about the challenges of education today. We're going to do definitely special ed. We're going to do a training on labor and negotiations. And then the other area that has really been a hot topic in education is your bidding and procurement issues. So those are sort of the four areas we want to make sure that we touch on. Um, but we will have our virtual booth. You will get to meet us all virtually and interact with us, and we will be um, – uh, there's an opportunity to connect, I guess, through the avatar on the screen. So, um, you know, it's it's going to be – it's a new platform, It's but it really is going to be exciting for us to incorporate, um, you know, our other members of our team and introduce everybody to school boards and the education community of New Jersey. Okay, thank you, Christine. And that was Christine Soto from Florio Perucci, Steinhardt, Capelli, Tipton, and Taylor. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at workshop, and thank you for joining us on this program, Christine. Thank you so and much, and us, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, and that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and have a good afternoon. Thank you again, Ray.